to all of you. It's a great privilege and honor to be invited to come and minister uh, God's word and also uh, celebrate Holy Communion with you. And uh, Pastor Jonathan and I have been friends for many, many decades. And so it is uh, for me a special privilege to be here. And I'm joined by my wife, Faith, this morning. Uh, and it's good to see some friends and familiar faces in the congregation. Now, um, there was a man who was uh, a first-timer in an Anglican church one day. And uh, very strangely, he was seated in the front row, right? And the bulk of the members were in the back half of uh, the church. So after the service, the pastor kind of made a beeline for this man. And uh, he said, are you here for the first time? He says, uh, yes, yes. Do you come from another church? No, 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 I'm not, I'm not a Christian. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Uh, do you know anyone here? Did somebody invite you? He says, no, no, not really. I came because of the reputation of this church. Really? Reputation? What do you mean? And he said, I'm a bus driver, and I came to learn how you all are so successful in getting people to move to the back. All right, now, um, I come uh, bringing greetings from St. Peter's Hall, right? Uh, St. Peter's Hall is the training center for our diocese, and uh, I won't say very much other than that we are on a trajectory of growth because uh, we need to cater to a, an enormous amount of training needs in the diocese, and we're starting very, very small. <coughs> So uh, perhaps I can encourage you to drop in at our website and find out a little bit more. The two main sections in the website are how we can serve you. And basically, we've set up six schools uh, through which most of our training will be done. And uh, we also run events. Uh, so that's how we can serve you. And then perhaps you can look at how you can help us to serve. And one of the, the things that you might consider doing is personally signing up to be on our mailing list so that every month or a couple of months, you will receive an update from us and uh, be plugged in to what's happening. All right. Mm. Now, my title for this morning is Connected Forgiveness, focusing mainly on our gospel text, right? And um, I want to begin uh, by giving you an overview of Matthew's gospel. Now, I find this is a good principle for anyone who is interested in knowing the Bible that before you zoom in to any particular passage or chapter or, or even verse, um, you need to zoom out first and you need to get a sense of the landscape. You need to get a sense of the context so that when you zoom in, uh, you will not interpret it uh, in a way that is jarring to the context. Okay, So uh, to zoom out to the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew is structured uh, in a very intentional way. It's not accidental. He has five clear discourses. Now, if you have a Bible with red letters, meaning wherever Jesus speaks any words, it's marked in red, you will find that there are five large chunks of red letters in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay? And, uh, and then interspersing these five uh, discourses or, or extended teachings of Jesus are four sections on the works of Jesus, the things that he did, like 
maybe healing people or perhaps conversations that he had with the Pharisees or, or things like that. So, so it's like a, a multi-deck burger, all right? And then uh, at the top and bottom, you have the introduction and conclusion. So the first teaching, uh, this course, is the, uh, in fi chapter 5 to 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And then you have one in chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 18, and then finally chapter 24 to 25, which is about the, the end times. Okay, Now, these five discourses kind of mirror the five books of Torah, meaning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, Jesus um, was, if you like, the greater Moses. And uh, Matthew's gospel was primarily written in the first instance for a congregation of Jewish converts to Christianity. Okay, so... He is uh, writing this primarily, uh, but not exclusively, for the benefit of Messianic Jews, okay, to use a modern term. And so he is interested in building on their knowledge of the Old Testament, which is why he quotes the Old Testament a lot, right? but showing them how it, things are now fulfilled in Christ and how Christ is... Uh, not only mirrors Moses in terms of his teaching authority, but he surpasses Moses. Now, these discourses are to equip these uh, Ju Jewish Christians in discipleship. Right? What does it mean now that you've become followers of Yeshua uh, to, to be a disciple and to be molded in his image? So the themes are character in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, mission in chapter 10, growth in chapter uh, 13, Right, where you have many, many parables in there. Then community life in chapter 18. Take note of that because that's the chapter we're looking at today. And then finally, destiny. Where are things heading? So this fourth discourse, um, Matthew 18, is mainly about community life as disciples. In other words, our relationship with our fellow disciples. So that gives you a good context of how to understand uh, the specific text that we're going to be looking at. All right, so let me now share my broad outline for today. Uh, we have an, uh, a short introduction, which is I've just, I'm coming to the end of that. Uh, then the two main parts of this service, this sermon would be understanding the parable of the unmerciful servant and applying the parable to our relationships. And I'll have a concluding uh, few remarks. All right. So with that, let's get straight into understanding the parable. Now, this is one of the most familiar parables. If you've been a Christian for some time, attending church, you would have heard this passage preached countless times. Okay, so it's actually rather challenging going back to a very familiar passage because sometimes there's a tendency for the congregation to switch off and say, what more can you teach me? I already know this. Okay, um, but let's, let's try and look at it in a fresh angle. I am going to preach a fairly mathematical sermon today. I hope that doesn't put you off, okay? You will understand what I mean uh, as we go along. Right, so firstly, I want to look at, uh, under understanding the parable, I want to look at roles, debt, and consequences, okay? So firstly, roles. What are the different roles in the parable and what do they represent? Well, it's very clear that the king or master in the parable represents God. And the servants, there are multiple servants, but there are, there is one key servant who is a focal uh, point of this parable. These are all persons in God's kingdom 
representing sinners saved by grace. Okay? Now, let me make this sort of a caveat. We are represented as servants in God's kingdom in this story. But I want to say to you that our relationship with God is complex. And no one picture, no one parallel, no one parable can capture everything about our relationship with God. Each parallel will illuminate a certain aspect of our relationship with God. So, uh, no one human relationship adequately parallels our relationship uh, or fully parallels our relationship with God. So, we therefore need multiple analogies to more fully understand how to relate to God. And all are simultaneously true. For example, we are portrayed as sons of God or children of God, as well as servants, as well as stewards, as well as the spouse of Christ, as well as the temple, etc. So all these multiple images uh, are all simultaneously true. So don't be, don't, don't, uh, be disturbed by the fact that we are being portrayed as a servant and say, but I thought we were sons. How can a son be a servant? Well, both are simultaneously true. Okay. Now, in this parable, the servant role is the focus, but it must be balanced with all the remaining images that define our relationship with God. So that's as much as I want to say about the roles. The king is God, right? The servants are disciples. Now, understanding the parable, the second part is about debt, right? And here, the debt, which can be an unrepaid loan or an unpaid fine, they represent sin. Okay? How is an unpaid fine a debt? So, for example, if you pick up a parking ticket, you parked in an area but you didn't uh, pay for your parking or you didn't put enough in your parking app or your coupons. Nobody uses coupons in Singapore anymore. Anyway, uh, but let's say you parked uh, illegally and then you get a parking ticket. All right? But the day you get your parking ticket is not the day you pay your fine. Sometimes you may take three days, one week, even up to two weeks to pay your fine. During that period where you have been fined but you have not paid the fine, you are in debt. Okay? You are obliged to pay the fine, you just haven't done it yet. Okay? So that is also one way to understand uh, debt. Now, the size of the debt represents the severity of the sin. And this is a very, very important point. So... The debt is measured in monetary terms in the parable. The larger the amount of money, the greater the, or the more severe is the sin that it represents. Okay? And the person to whom you owe the debt is the person against whom you have sinned. Now, one denarius is a commonly known unit for one day's wages for a common laborer. Okay? In... in in that day, a denarius would feed a family for a day. So, um, how much is it equivalent to? How much does it take to feed a family of four, let's say living in a four-room flat today? Well, different ones may come up with a different estimate. That's okay. But you roughly know that we're not talking about $1 or $2. We're talking about probably of the order of 30 $40, $50 maybe to, to meet the needs of the family for a day. So that's one denarius. Okay. Now what about 
one talent. One talent was equivalent to 20 years wages. 20 times 365 times one denarius. Okay? <laughs> That's one talent. So now, when you take the comparison of the two debts, right? The first servant owed the king 10,000 talents. The second servant owed the first servant 100 denarii. Let's say you, you compare these two. You, you want to find what is the ratio, okay? The ratio is 2,000 years wages compared to one day's wages, or roughly 730,000 is to one. Okay, so... This is mind-boggling. It is almost absurd, and it is intentionally so. It is to make people kind of go, <laughs> are you sure? But it is making an important point, okay? The size of the debt represents the severity of the sin, okay? And the comparison of the debt represents the comparison of the severity of sin. All right, now... The, the final area is consequences. So there are consequences for the unpaid debt of the first servant to the king, and there are consequences for the unpaid debt of the second servant to the first servant. Right. So uh, the first thing is that you see the king getting angry. Oh, okay, sorry. Before I go there, I want to make this final point about uh, how to make sense of the 10,000 talents. The, how, how does anyone accumulate a loan that big? Well, I want to suggest to you it's probably not a loan, but it's probably a fine. Now, uh, the same crime or the same offense committed against different people will get you different penalties. The greater the authority of the person who is wrong, the greater the penalty. Compare the recent case of the student who threatened his teacher. Did you see that? Uh, there was a video that went viral of a student, sadly from one of our Anglican schools, who threatened his teacher to the face and, and threatened to end his life. Okay, Very young boy. Okay, Now, suppose he did that to a fellow student, to one of his classmates. Would that constitute a serious offense? To threaten a fellow classmate that he will end his life. Would that already bring upon him some kind of consequence? Yes, it would. But now, instead of a student, he threatens a teacher. Would the consequences remain the same or would they go up? They would go up. If instead he threatened the principal of the school the exact same way, would the consequences remain the same or would they go up? They would go up. And if he chose to pre uh, threaten President Halima, let's say, hypothetically, the exact same way, do you think the consequences would go up? You see, the greater the authority of the person against whom you offend, the greater will be the pe penalty that comes back to you. It is just a fact of common sense. And so the 10,000 talents may not necessarily uh, be all about the, the greatness of the sin or the heinousness of the sin or what a terrible thing that person has done, but rather it is about the greatness of the person against whom he has sinned. Okay, it's making a point. Now let's talk about consequences. So the anger of the king represents the anger of God. And the imprisonment that the king uh, sort of sentences the first servant with for his unpaid debt is the, the, 
the picture of God meeting out justice and judgment for uh, the sins of sinners. Okay? Now, the inclusion of the family, that means where he says that not only this man is thrown in prison, but his wife and children are also thrown in prison until the debt is paid. Well, that seems to suggest that, that sin and the impact of sin and the consequences for sin aren't only confined to the individual who does everything, that there is a certain splash effect, if you like, a certain uh, impact that, that, that touches the family. We don't know exactly how, but we know that uh, those who are intimately connected to the sinner uh, do tend to reap consequences along with them. Just think of the Old Testament uh, where you have the, the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram against uh, God and against Moses and Aaron. And when God judges them, uh, that judgment is not reserved for these three men alone, but their whole families, right? So there's something there. It's just there as a warning for, for the world to take note. Now, the plea for more time to repay. That first servant pleads. He falls to his knees and he pleads. Give me more time, I will pay you back. That prayer is described by the word imploring. He implored him. The first servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. I want to say to you that that is an equivalent to what happens in a sinner's prayer. When somebody comes as a sinner seeking forgiveness from God, and he implores God to forgive him. That attitude of, of contrition, humility, and desperation. You only implore when you're desperate. That attitude is uh, what we see here. Okay, And, and, and so it, it represents uh, repentance and remorse. But then what we find is the king takes pity on the servant, has mercy on him. So this represents God's uh, feeling sim sympathy for the remorsefulness of that servant's plea. And so the cancellation of the debt equates to the forgiveness and the wiping away of that person's record of sin. Okay, But then what happens is that this servant throws his fellow servant in jail then the king hears about it, hauls him back in front of him and reverses the cancellation of sin. He revokes the cancellation of sin. He reinstates the penalty of 10,000 talents and throws him in prison. So what does that represent? Well, that represents a withdrawal of forgiveness. So the crux of the parable, and this is a very sobering parable, is this is found in these words of the king. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? As, in the same way as, or like I had mercy on you. That's, that's the crux of it. The whole parable hinges on that one word. As, like, in the same manner. So uh, I could paraphrase it as, shouldn't your treatment of your fellow servant be connected to my treatment of you? Okay, And I will unpack this as we go into the application. So I, I, I now want to move to the second part, which is applying the parable. 
But before I get there, I want to share a personal story. Uh, many years ago, now some of you would know by now that I was in SJSM, St. John's and Margaret's, for many years. 15 years in total, six as one of the clergy team, and then nine as vicar. Uh, but before I was sent to SJSM by the bishop, I had on one occasion been invited there as a guest speaker. I was in COR, serving as a clergy at that time. But uh, uh, back then, he was uh, Archdeacon Rennis Panaya. Uh, he invited me to be a guest speaker. So when I drove my car and was parking in the church car park, horror of horrors, I bumped into one of the parked cars there. Okay? And I dented it. This is not the actual photograph, uh, but this is something like the dent that I caused in the car park. The person was probably one of the members attending the church, and I had no idea who it was. I was a guest in that place. I felt great remorse, so I took one of my parking coupon, and I, on the reverse blank side, I wrote a note. I said, I am so sorry that I bumped into your car. I am willing to pay for the repairs. Please contact me. This is my name and my contact number. And I put it on the, de on the windscreen under the wiper. Then I went in for the service. By the time I came out, that car had gone. Right? So I didn't know. I didn't know what would happen. A couple of days later, I received a phone call. And it was the person who was the driver of the car. And he said, you're Pastor Joshua, right? <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, I'm so sorry, you know. Uh, please let me know how I can pay you back for the repairs. He said, it's okay. It's all good. Taken care of. No problem. I said, I, I, I really want to, to reimburse you. He says, no problem. Uh, I'll take care of it. It's nice of you to, to let me know. God bless you. So I was very, very thankful. And, uh, you know, to my shame, I never got to find out who this person was. They, this, this angel remains a mystery. Uh, his, his identity remains a mystery to me. But uh, what I want to point out is that damage had been done. Even though I was forgiven of the debt, the cost of it was absorbed by the driver, right? And that always happens in forgiveness. So now let's uh, apply this parable. And I want to talk about Firstly, uh, two, two different paradigms. One is about the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship and what happens when these two are connected. So, um, so this bar in the middle represents the vertical dimension of my relationship with God. So there's God at the top, there's me at the bottom, all right? And then the blue arrow on the left represents me doing something to God, which is I sin against Him. And we all do that, right? We all sin against God. We break His commandments. The things that we ought to do, we don't do. The things that we should not do, we do. Right? So we sin against God. And then God, as a response to my sin, pronounces judgment against my sin. Now this is important. Don't fast forward and skip over this. This is necessary for us to understand grace. That we must first understand judgment. Otherwise, grace makes no sense at all. So we must understand that God's rightful response, His holy response to sin, is to judge it and to pronounce that there is a penalty to be paid. Now, what happens next? If I confess and repent of my sin, if I implore God, 
not so much to give me more time, but to forgive me because I am incapable of repaying this debt. Then what we know through the gospel is that God has mercy on me and he forgives me for Jesus' sake. That's why in our uh, confession prayer, which we said just now, for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past. So it's not for our sake. It's not that we deserve to be forgiven. It's for the sake of Jesus and what he did on our behalf that we are pleading for forgiveness. And God forgives us, right? He has mercy on us and he forgives our sins. Now, there is another dimension in life that is the horizontal dimension that connects me with others, right? And these others could be anybody else, any other human being. Could be your spouse, could be your parents, could be your children, your siblings, could be your neighbor, could be your colleague, boss, subordinate, stranger, bus driver, anybody. Okay? They all fall into this category of others. Now, others sin against us. People wrong us from time to time. Can I hear an amen? Amen. <laughs> that was more like a mumble. <laughs> But we know that that's true. People hurt us, right? This world would be a wonderful place if not for the people, <laughs> right? So, um, so then what is our rightful response to that? What is our natural response to that? We want justice to be done. We want vengeance. We want revenge. We want punishment. We want them to pay. At the very least, we want them to apologize, right? Okay, so now, suppose that person does apologize. They confess and they repent of their, of their sin. They're wrong. They're having offended us. At that point, we have these two options. I call them options, not the best word, but let me just use that term for now. We have option A. Harden my heart and still demand justice. In other words, I reject their apology. I reject their repentance. And I say, I don't care what you feel, what you say, how sincere you are. I demand that you put this right. And I want full restitution. And until you can make that restitution, into the jail you go. All right? So that's one response. The other response is, I have pity on them. I, I forgive them. And I absorb the cost of the damage done some sense okay those are the two chances now let me suggest to you that if the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of life are unconnected <coughs> that means they are in two different big separate compartments one side is my relationship with god and then there's a barrier in between the other side is my relationship with people these two have nothing to do with each other who i am on sunday and who i am monday to saturday have nothing to do with each with each other. They're just two separate worlds. One is a spiritual world and the other is the real world. Okay? If this is our thinking, then it is very likely that our normal response, apart from some exceptions, will be to harden our heart and to still seek justice. Very likely. Because we are responding just as a wounded person to a person who wounded us. This is the normal expected outcome. You will not forgive. 
But what happens when you see that these two are connected? And please watch the screen because I want to make this point. When these two are connected, then the likelihood is that we will have pity or have mercy on the person who is repenting and we will forgive them and in so doing, we will better reflect the gospel. We will show that we as Christians are different. So this is the first challenge that I want to bring to us. Connect the vertical with the horizontal. See that these two don't lie in different watertight compartments, that they are joined together on the cross. Okay. The second thing I want to do is talk about balance sheet. Okay. Now, how many of you hate the mention of accounting and things like balance sheet and, and you have phobia for these kind of terms? Anyone? Okay, a few people here, maybe. All right. My, my apologies to you, but it's making the same point and I'll try and keep this simple. I'm no expert myself, okay? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not an accounting whiz. But um, I want to talk about separate or combined balance sheets. Okay, so... A balance sheet is a snapshot of the financial situation of a person or organization. So it kind of captures what you have, which is your assets. It also captures what you owe to others, which is your liabilities. And so when you take away uh, liabilities from assets, then you have your net assets, which is what you really own, okay? So suppose the blue dots represent, blue and green dots represent what you have. That means what is in your possession. The green dots represent what you owe. So your net assets are just the blue dots. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is like the, the very basic structure of a balance sheet. All right. So now, let's try and put this in terms of a loan. Person A lends to person B. Okay, this is a financial loan. So on person A's balance sheet, let's say they have an individual balance sheet for each of them. On person A's balance sheet, the bank balance may register a decrease. So you, they've taken something from their bank balance, which is part of their assets, and they've given a loan. Let's say $100,000, okay? They've given a loan to B. So the bank balance shows a drop of $100,000. But there is another category of assets called accounts receivable. That means money that rightfully belongs to you and should come to you in a matter of time. So the accounts receivable will increase by $100,000. So the drop in bank balance and the increase in accounts receivable, they sort of cancel each other out. So the net assets remain the same before the loan and after the loan. The person still owns all of what they previously owned. Okay? It's just that some of it is parked with B. What about B's balance sheet? Well, B's balance sheet, B is the one receiving the loan, right? So their bank balance, let's say they put all the money in the bank account, their bank balance will show a, a 100,000 increase. But they have another category in their balance sheet called accounts payable under the liabilities. And accounts payable goes up by 100,000. 
So when you take away assets uh, and liabilities, the net assets remain the same. B's assets have not changed before the loan and after the loan. Is that fine? Okay. Now what happens if that loan is forgiven? The word is forgiven or cancelled. Both are used in the financial world. You can forgive a loan or forgive a debt or you can cancel a loan, cancel a debt. All right? What happens? Look at the balance sheet. When person A forgives person B of the debt, then the bank balance has already decreased, but now the accounts receivable is deleted, is written off. Okay, whatever was meant to be accounts receivable was written off, and so the net asset shows 100,000 decrease. What about B? B's bank balance had increased, but then their liabilities are now written off, deleted from the balance sheet, and so their net assets increase. So can, I, can you see from here why when a person A forgives person B, it is so painful because it feels like A loses and B wins? If you look at this as a win-lose situation, a zero-sum game, it feels like the person you're forgiving wins. They get away with murder, right? We use these terms. And you lose. And that's why it's so hard. Okay, but now let's look at the vertical dimension, God and us. So when God forgives our debt of 10,000 talents, okay, God's balance sheet, when he forgives, and this is not just loaning, but forgiving the debt, God's balance sheet, the net assets, decrease by 10,000 talents. And perhaps what you can uh, connect that to is what it cost God to send Jesus to die on the cross. Our balance sheet, when God cancels our debt, increases, our net assets increase by 10,000 talents. Fair enough? So who wins, who loses? <laughs> God loses, we win. Now, here's the thing. When the vertical and the horizontal are connected, that means we, we have only one balance sheet. You cannot have two different balance sheets for yourself, two different accounts. You have one balance sheet for the totality of your assets and liabilities. So what does it look like? When you put, okay, so let's say we forgive others their debt of 100 denarii, our net assets decrease by 100 denarii, their net assets increase by 100 denarii. But now I put them all on the same page. If there's God and us and others, God forgives my huge debt to him, his net assets decrease by 10,000 talents. I forgive other people's small debts to me, their net assets increase by 100 denarii. What about me in the middle? I have both increase and decrease. I increase by 10,000 and decrease by 100 denarii. So overall, increase or decrease? Increase. Overall, increase. So friends, 
What Jesus wants us to realize from this parable is this. The vertical and the horizontal dimensions of forgiveness are connected, not separate. It comes down to this verse, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In other words, shouldn't your treatment of your fellow servant be connected, not disconnected uh, to my treatment of you? So by forgiving others, we are not impoverishing ourselves or losing out because of how much God has already forgiven us. In other words, we forgive from a place of fullness, not emptiness, and we reflect the gospel's transforming impact on us. Can I just put it this way? We Christians are fabulously rich in terms of God's favour mind-bogglingly rich in terms of God's favour. And the rest of the world, because they don't know it yet, are in huge debt. No matter how much, how rich they think they are, ultimately, their accounts payable is huge. And it will obliterate whatever assets they think they've accumulated. Therefore, when it comes to forgiving offences, we Christians are more empowered than anyone else on the planet. Amen? But it all comes down to how we see life. It all comes down to whether the spiritual realm and the social realm are disconnected or together. My challenge to us today is, what God has joined together, let not man, you and I included, put asunder. Bishop Titus uh, once preached on this text at the cathedral, and um, he made this point, which has stuck with me for years. He says, those who have received God's gracious pardon forfeit the right to withhold forgiveness from others. Think about that. If we are willing to receive God's gracious cancellation of all of our sin, together with that, and Jesus makes this point very clearly in this text, we forfeit the right to withhold forgiveness and to, and to demand vengeance. But I want to make a caveat and this, these are important caveats because we live in a complex world, right? So this parable applies very strongly, most strongly to fellow Christians who wrong us and are sincerely remorseful. They are fellow servants of the same king and they sincerely plead for mercy. And the remorse is important because in both cases, the forgiveness came after remorse, after imploring, after pleading for forgiveness. It applies less strongly, I'm saying this story, this parable applies less strongly to fellow Christians who wrong us and are unremorseful. In other words, they don't ask for forgiveness, they don't apologize, or they are obviously insincere, meaning they apologize, but you know that they don't mean it, they keep repeating the same offense, their actions disprove their words. 
So our obligation to forgive in such cases is less clear. I'm not saying we are released from our obligation to forgive. I think it is less clear. So sometimes you may need to forgive someone who's already passed on. And they, they are no longer in a position to apologize. They can't do anything to kind of put things right with you. But you may need to forgive for your own sake because otherwise it will be eating you up inside like, like poison. But it's less clear as an application of this parable. And in fact, the portion of Matthew 18 in the earlier part uh, speaks about how you must confront the unremorseful and exercise church discipline against them if they remain unremorseful. So sin is not to be swept under the carpet. Abuse is not something that the church condones. Okay, It has to be dealt with. It has to be confronted. But where there is remorse, where there is confession, there needs to be grace because that is what God has done for us. Right? And finally, I want to draw your attention to uh, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 where he warns against taking fellow Christians who wrong us to court before unbelieving judges, which damages the church's collective witness to the world. Right? So better to resolve things in the church. However, there are certain categories of offences where we are obliged by the law to report them. Okay, if there's sexual abuse, if there's kind of like uh, certain categories of sin in the penal code, then we have to report them. Right, so those things are not kind of like cancelled out here. So let me end with this verse from uh, Paul. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Please join me in prayer. <coughs> Lord, we want to thank you that you have made us rich rich in grace, rich in mercy, because, Lord, you have cancelled our 10,000-talent debt that we owed to you. And nothing on earth matches the severity of that debt that we owed to you and that you have cancelled for us. So, Lord, we want to thank you that you have loved us and for Jesus' sake have forgiven us, help us to connect our relationships with others to what you have done for us and help us to feel the, the power uh, through your Holy Spirit applying this truth deep in our heart. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.